Um, if you could just turn to Luke chapter 19, I'm going to look at a story that, that we all know or have heard or have sung about. Um, and as you're turning, uh, let, let me pass on a story that I heard not too long ago. Uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, for many years, told a, a story about a desperate ship off the coast of the Amazon River in the Atlantic Ocean. And this was a, a ship that had uh, run out of water. And all of the crew members were at a place of desperation in that they were um, staring at death. And so they, had, they saw a ship that was off the distance, and so they began to, to send signals. And what they sent was simply, dying of thirst, send help. And the response that they received was not what they expected. The response was simply, let down your bucket. That's not what they wanted to hear. We're in a prison of salt water. How are we supposed to let down our bucket? And so they weren't sure that, that this ship receded, so they sent it again. Dying of thirst, send help. What they didn't realize is that in the Amazon River, uh, what happens is that there's 200 miles into the Atlantic Ocean. It pushes the salt water down and clean, pure, crisp water exists. And so what this ship did is they just went, you know what? If they're telling us to let down our bucket, let's just go ahead and do it. Let's prove them wrong. So they let down their bucket and what they tasted was the coolest, crispest, if that's even a word, water that they had ever had, that fresh water existed in the midst of a salt water prison. I love this story because it reflects, I believe, the current cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Everywhere we look, people are in the ship of their life, dying of thirst, desperate for a cool drink of hope. We don't have to go far to, to see how we are a culture that's parched by several things. For example, we're parched by loneliness. 56% of people in Washington, D.C. alone, I'm sorry, live alone. 56% of people in the Washington, D.C. area live alone. It's the highest percentage in the world. I'll give you a little bit of perspective on this. In London, the percentage there is 28% in the and what this nation um, had to do is they created a, a position called the Minister of Loneliness because of the fact that loneliness had so defined their nation uh, just with 28% of people in London living alone. 47% of Americans feel alone. 46% of Americans feel left out. 30% of millennials would say that they are lonely all the time. There's been a 3,000% spike of life coaches, counselors, therapists, and social workers because people are looking not necessarily to, to connect, but to get someone to help them build their brand to the world. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says this, the greatest health challenge that I faced while in office was the epidemic of loneliness. We're not just a culture defined and parched by loneliness, we're a culture parched to drink of water, drink the water of a narrative that works. Neil Postman, he says this, 
But in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. It's stories of our origins and of our end is to say the least unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, probably by an accident. To the question, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Which is the reason that you have books like The Purpose Driven Life that are, that are year in, year out at the top of the book charts because of the, of the fact that people are desperate to find some type of a consequential end, linking themselves to the transcendent through purpose. George Orwell says it like this. He says, I thought of a rather cruel trick I once played on a wasp. He was sucking jam on my plate and I cut him in half. He paid no attention, merely went on with his meal while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did, the, did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. It is in the same way with modern man. The thing that has been cut away is his soul. Is that we're, we're a culture that is feeding on power, feeding on sexuality, feeding on possessions, feeding on control. And we don't realize the thing we're feeding on is killing us until we reach for the transcendent and we've got nothing to connect it to. And then you have an entire generation that is parched to see the Christian story lived out. This is what I mean. Gen Z, which is the ages of about 12 to 24, is the fastest deconverting generation in our history. 1.2 million young people in Gen Z will walk away from the church just this year. And they're walking away not because of theological reasons, they're not, they're not walking away because of, of something that they necessarily have a tough time connecting to, but because they don't find the Christian faith compelling in the lives that they see it lived out of. And the, the, the irony is that in the midst of a society where, where it's never been more open or at least seemingly possible to help people engage with the Christian story, it's never been more challenging to communicate it. This tension is, is really, it's said perfectly by Rosaria Butterfield when she says it like this. Let's face it, we have become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense has declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. And so the question now is, what does it look like for us as, as a church, not just this church, but all over this D.C. area, to be like that second ship that just simply waves and says, drop down your bucket? Like, What, what does it look like for us as a church to, in, to, to enter in, to wade into the lives of those around us with hope, with expectations? And I think we've got three options. Option one 
is we just don't do it at all. We put our Bose headphones in and we just keep going about life. And we, and, and we just, we keep quiet and we just survive. That's option one. Option two is we edit the way that we tell the Jesus story. And we fit it into the progressive world in order to be publicly correct. We decimate it. Or option three. We help people drink the cool water of hope through a process and through a, um, an invitation that we see in the life of Jesus that is, that is centered around divine hospitality. And this is what I want to, to, to title the message. Divine hospitality, God's portal of belonging. Divine hospitality, God's portal of belonging. And in Luke chapter 19, pick me up in verse 1. This is what it says. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Um, just a couple before we dive in, just a couple of like background comments about this story that we all have sung about. We've known this on, if you like back in the day, flannel graphs. Or, you know, singing this song as a kid where you think, you know, Jesus loves short people too, right? I mean, like, that's kind of the, the moral of the story. And yet, what I love about the story is that it is so rich and pregnant with background. You see, Jesus is going to Jericho. Jericho was home base for scribes and priests. This is where they lived. And they would take the 18-mile journey to go to Jerusalem. That's why in Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan, uh, the scribes and, and Pharisees were on their way to Jericho because that's where they lived. And so Jesus is going to the belly of the beast, if you will. This is where everybody uh, of a religious standpoint is. Um, this is Jesus' final moment of ministry. Now, if you know that you're on, if time is of the essence and you're a, your, your moments, you're a week away. This is where he's a week away from his death. What you do with your time matters. Every moment is purposeful. And you have in Jesus, he's taking his last ministry moment that he'll ever have. And we find it in Luke chapter 19. We have this little man named Zacchaeus. His name Zacchaeus means the just, the righteous, the pure. <laughs> how, how crazy would that be to be called the pure one and everything that you do is about stealing from others? This is the irony, the juxtaposition. This is the contrast of his life and Jesus' life. You have, you have the, 
the most righteous. You have what we're going to find the least righteous. And yet you have a man, an identity, a person who was made to become something that he was not. And he was searching, I need somebody to make me my name. We find that he's a tax farmer. He's, he's a toll collector. But this is, you know, this is, this is a pretty big deal to be, and, and this is the only time in the entire Bible that he's called, that the title chief tax collector is mentioned. And so you have a tax farmer, and, and they, would, they, they, they would be of Jewish background. They would work with the Roman government and ha- actually buy spots in certain cities. You would have to pay for it. And now what you would do is that you would, as a Jew, you would have the power behind you of a Roman sword and you would now go to people and you would require them to pay whatever you, you had uh, created as a number for that week. And those numbers could fluctuate. So depending upon, for example, Zacchaeus' relationship with Peter or John, and Peter and John kind of crossed Zacchaeus the week before, you know, for that week, it would, it would have been 70% for that guy for the following week. He's, you know what? It's 80% this week. What you going to do? You're going to come at me? And there's, there was no response. This, and this is what made them the most hated people in that society. And I, I can't say that enough because when we, when we see that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and those were seen as the lowest rung of society, we don't really understand that in this day and age. But if I were to tell you that, they were, that Jesus were to be seen on Instagram eating with a pedophile, that Jesus ate with, 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 a, with a person who was marching in Charlottesville with the Ku Klux Klan, That suddenly gets our attention. And this is exactly what it would have been like in this day and age. It would have been, it it, it would have been offensive at every level. At every level. And what you would have as a tax collector, if, if a tax farmer came into your home, what would happen is that your home would instantly be seen as unclean. And this is the backdrop that you have with Jesus as he enters into this story. And if you just would follow me, just one observation that I saw about the story that I love so much is that in spite of crowds and his pending death, Jesus has awareness to see a person. Just Imagine what it would have been like to be him and he's overwhelmed with crowds and you are, you are in Jericho. They're, they're lined up. And in the midst of, of a sea of humanity, this is a man who had margins enough in his life to adjust his, his schedules and his rhythms in order to pursue a person. He saw, he saw people. He saw an individual life. We live in a world of emergencies demands, that they're creating, it's almost like it's created a decision fatigue in us. I mean, we're told, buy now, protest now, speak now, post now. And then you add in the fact that if you're a parent, I mean, if you're a parent, you exhaust all of what you have, your emotions, your resources, your spiritual dynamics, everything that you have is now 
all in on helping your family just survive day to day. Right, like, like everything about our current cultural norm right now is that it is so easy to just live a life of survival where we go inward. And yet what I love about, the, there's a quote, Blaise Pascal, he says this, inattention is the greatest enemy of your spiritual life. Is it being around, being surrounded by people and yet feeling just going inward of, of you put your, again, you put your headphones in and you're just trying to keep your head down and just get through. And he says that inattention, the, in, the, the commitment to not be fully present is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life. Let, let, let me just say this. You may not be too sinful to be used by God, but you may be too busy. Jesus is always, he's inviting margin into his life. Regular routines are consistently disrupted, but not destroyed. He's reordering things. And I just, just want to say that when we see this story, let's just remember that at, at the end of the day, this story is about how you and I are very much Zacchaeus and Jesus has seen us. He's seen us. He, that we are now a seen people and he empowers us to be a seen people in return. That this is the hope that we have to now in the midst of so much activity, in the midst of so much chaos, that we can actually begin to adopt and be baptized into Jesus' commitment to, be, to being a seeing savior that makes us a seeing people. I love what um, John Ortberg, this is what he says. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre, mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Observation two. Jesus creates a portal of belonging through hospitality where Zacchaeus' identity is discovered. Like this is what Jesus does. He creates a portal of belonging that, that what he does he goes up to a tree and he says he says Zacchaeus come down and which is so beautiful because in about a week Jesus will climb a tree so that Zacchaeus could come out of his and he says I want to go to your house and you might be asking well what's the big deal with the whole house fellowship thing why is this a big deal well, it's a big deal because this is a motif that really the whole Bible is wrapped around. I'll, I'll prove that to you in just a second. In Genesis chapter 3, what we find is that sin enters into the world over meal. Two people who eat a meal in rebellion against God, and as a result, hostility is birthed. And if you think about it, hostility has been seen and embodied at the table ever since. I saw a sign in 1968 in England. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. A sign all over restaurants in England. I mean, if you consider the civil rights movement, where did it begin? It began with a courageous group led by John Lewis in places like Nashville, where they entered into these spaces at the table, 
at a place of hostility where people, it was, it's always been created to keep certain people out and certain people in. And yet they were, they courageously stepped in and said, no, 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 we are going to contend for the table. And this is exactly what Jesus, what we find all throughout the scriptures is that hostility is seen and embodied and expressed at the table. This is the reason we eat with people who are just like us. And you see all over these boundary markers, dividing, keeping in, dividing. And this is what God uses as this motif throughout the Old Testament to constantly remind his people. It's a portal of belonging that reminds them who they are. It reminds them of whose they are. That's why you have things like the seven feasts in the Old Testament, these feasts that really structured the Hebrew calendar. Well, what is that? Those are feasts that remind the people of Israel, I'm your people, I'm your God, you're mine. It's, it, they needed seven feasts all throughout the process of one year alone to be told that you, God, you are our God and we submit, we surrender. You see, meals all throughout the Old Testament one after another, things, moments like in Exodus 24 where Moses and the elders, they ate, they drank, and they beheld God. And then you, you see in Jesus the same thing. It's, he embodies this. In fact, in, in the book of Luke alone, there's over 60 references to meals. In Matthew, it's 90. And what you have is one theologian, he said, Jesus is either eating a meal, he's either going to a meal, eating a meal or leaving a meal throughout the entirety of, of Luke's gospel. And, and, and what, 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 we, what we find is, is, is that he's doing something, he's, he's, he's creating these moments, these portals of belonging with people such as Levi the tax collector in Luke 5. In Luke 7, he encounters a woman of the night. And it's at this space where, where he comes face to face with her and he, he restores her identity. Where? At a table, at a meal, in a moment of hospitality. You have Luke 9, the feeding of the 5,000. Luke 19 with the story of Zacchaeus. Luke 22, the Last Supper. And then you have Luke 24, two disciples running away from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. And where do their eyes open up and they see Jesus? They see him at a meal. They see him at the table. That I'm telling you, this is the tool that God has always used to, to now create Portals of belonging where our identity is restored. We discover who we are. That God's, what the, pro, the practical process of him helping us see whose we are and who we are is at these moments of the table where, you're, where, where the work is done, you come to receive. And it's in this moment with Zacchaeus that an environment of welcome results in a conversion of identity that produces a new humanity that Jesus is creating in the world. They're like, this is what Jesus is doing. This is, this is the, the fulfillment of his ministry. You see, in Luke 19, he gives us his mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. But in Luke 7, 34, it says, and the son of man came eating and drinking. Well, what's he saying? The methodology, the evangelistic approaches of Jesus is divine hospitality that fulfills his divine mission, which is to seek and to save the, all those who were lost. And this is, this is what he came to do. And the result in Zacchaeus' life, 
His identity is restored. You see in verse 10, he becomes a son of Abraham. He now was the outsider. The outsider became the insider. Where? At, at the power of hospitality at a table fellowship moment. That in a, in a place of hostility, Jesus creates a hospitable place that now gives him new view of himself and a new lease on life. He's launched into a life of restoring others at the table. He says, half of my wealth I'm going to give to the poor. And then, oh, by the way, his destiny is created. Did you know that, that Zacchaeus, according to church history, would become the bishop of Caesarea? Uh, bishop of Caesarea was the highest calling. Caesarea was, was the fa- one of the fastest growing parts of the church in the first 200 years. And he was the bishop of Caesarea. This was a defining moment in the last moments of Jesus' life. And it's in this example that Jesus gives that now hospitality, the the gift and the charge of hospitality is now given to the church collectively. That this is is now we're invited into this. And you might be asking, well, what does hospitality even mean, Corey? I mean, I, I think of it as just, you know, Ikea furniture and candles, like, is it, is it more than that? Well, kind of. Actually, yes. A lot more. It actually, it's a, it's a merging of two words, uh, words that had never been created in the first hundred years of the church. They're literally making a new word for what I'm about to explain to you. It's, it's from the word uh, um, non-erotic love, and it's xenos, the stranger or the other or the refugee. And so it's a merging of loving the stranger the way that you've been loved. And this is where we get words like hospital, hospice, hostel, hotel, all merging out of, all coming out of this one idea that now is is spawned out of what we see in the life of Jesus in Luke 19. That now it becomes an expectation in the early church. And you might be asking, well, Corey, is this really central? Are you sure this is really central? Like, are, we sh- are you sure that we're really called to this? But all biblical hospitality, it flows from the hospitality shown to us in God. That it's, it's like every time that you open up your doors and you invite an outsider to become an insider, what you're doing is it's like a Facebook remi- reminder of a past event. Hey, have you ever, my, my wife showed me a couple of, of experiences that we had 15 years ago. And it's in seeing that I was just flooded with emotions and, and, and just, just um, both excitement and gratitude to be a father and a husband. Like it reminded me of who I was, who I've always been. Every time we participate in hospitality, you are now, come, you come face to face with the fact that you were an enemy of God, but guess what? You were an outsider, but you've been brought on the inside now. Like it, it's a reminder of who you were, but who you are because of one man. Like every time we, we enter into the grace of hospitality, this divine hospitality where we are creating portals of belonging, we are reminded of who we were. We are reminded we were enemies, but now we are, we are embracing this new identity that we've been given that we expect for God to give to somebody else. Hospitality is central and it is not optional. And we find it in verses like Romans chapter 12, 13. 
Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The word practice is in the present tense, and it, it literally means it's set in rapid motion. Like, like this is, the early church, they really believed that because of the fact that this is, this was the primary way that Jesus loved people, and this was the primary way in which he expressed and embodied that love, and so the early church said, we're all in on this. I mean, they didn't have evangelism trainings. Their, their, their church growth model wasn't built around like really engaging pastors with tight jeans. I mean, like, like this wasn't their process. This wasn't their model. This wasn't how they were going to build the church. They were building the church on hospitality, period. Like this is, they went all in on the fact that this is how we are going to extend and express the love of Jesus through, through us individually as families and as a church. We're going to embody this grace to begin to extend ourselves to those who are in need. 1 Peter 4, 8 through, through 10. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, I mean, that's a Christian bookstore coffee cup like verse. We love that. I mean, we can close our Bible and go, thank you, Jesus. I'll take some more coffee. But the next verse isn't on the coffee cup. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Again, this idea of hospitality was seen as a requirement to be a leader in the church. You see it in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, that, that it was a quality required of a leader. Show hospitality. And then you see this expressed in the first 400 years of the church where you see such intense church growth that is stunning. They went from a marginalized group to now an emerging cultural iconic movement. How? Hospitality. Divine hospitality where they were creating portals of belonging where those who don't have or know their identity could discover it. You see guys like John Christostom in 400. He was a pastor. He's a saint. He's the man. And the way that he pastored his people is he encouraged them to create what was called Christ rooms. It's just a room in their house with a bed and a candle. And it was designed for one purpose. In case someone comes and knocks on your door, show them the love of Jesus through a Christ room. You had men like Basil the Great in 370, the Bishop of Caesarea. He founded the first hospital, and it was called a storehouse of piety. From 500 all the way through 1500 AD, the church was now taken to whole new levels through monasteries. Monasteries were these new creative ideas that became outposts on the bleeding edge of the Roman society to expand Christianity. But they became the axis point of society as a whole. They were there. They, I mean, it's, it's, it's from these spaces of monasteries that you have the water wheel being formed. You have writing being perpetuated. You've got, got the creation of beer. Yes. <laughs> beer. You've got hospitals. You've got cultural renewal. You've got feeding the poor. 
It was all as a result of divine hospitality. Sky Jathani says this, our homes are to be hospitals, refugees, refuge, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven, and our dinner tables are to be oper operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and our peepholes, we begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. So how do we do this? And I, I, I know that you're saying, well, Corey, I don't have a place that can entertain. And I just want to spark your imagination in completely, completely decimating the combination, or at least the, the similarities between entertainment and hospitality. To entertain is all about exclusion, performance, host-guest, sporadic, recipro reciprocity. I'll do it this time, you do it next time. It's about stratas, about, about making sure I invite the right people to make me look better. But everything in hospitality is not about exclusion, but inclusion. It's not about performance, it's about service. It's not about host guest, it's about blurring the lines. Now those, those who you would never engage with, you invite them into your, into your home and things, like it's almost like, like defenses melt. Hearts are melted because the table is this space where heaven and earth meet. It's not about sporadic, it's not about an event, it's about a way of life. It's not about reciprocity, it's about generosity, it's about the, the, the guest is, is not just coming to receive, they're also coming to give. But Corey, I, I'm just, you don't understand, I, am, I don't have the time. What if our homes were to have a transition where we went from being castles to outposts? Like if you think about it, your home has a garage. What is with that garage? It goes up, it goes up long enough where you can do your, your patented wave to your neighbors, and you smile, you smile, you smile, you wave, you wave, you wave, you get into your garage, you made it. The garage goes down. You're in your castle. You keep the world out, right? Like this is, I understand working 75 hours a week plus this great commute in Northern Virginia, I understand you're barely, like you feel like, Corey, I'm barely surviving. My castle, my home is my castle. I go to get away. And what, what if the gospel begins to transform our hearts in a way where we reevaluate our home, not as castles where we escape the world from, but actually outposts that we begin to invite people into? Like, like, like what could possibly happen if you, if you began to make this slow but steady commitment of saying, God, you have loved me an outsider. Help me to begin to see my home as a, as a place for the outsider. I've, I've got, a, I've got an, a, a, a picture here. It says, who is my neighbor? Could you put that up for me? This is what I want you to do. I want you to consider your home and then the eight neighbors that you have around you. And I want you to think, do you know their names? Do you know their kids' names? And don't feel bad if you don't. Only 10% of Christians know the neighbors, the eight neighbors around them. Now, that's, that, that's a really terrible percentage. 
that only 10% of Christians and only 1% of, of believers know not only all of the neighbors around them, but their, wife, their wife or their spouse's name, as well as their, their kids' names. Like, start there. Who are the neighbors around you? Who, who are they? What is their story? What are their kids' names? And then here's some next steps. What if you were to just start with meeting your neighbors? Just start there. Or what if you were to have a spring block party? What if you were to actually like do a prayer walk and begin to, during the season of Easter, with Easter one month from now, what if you were to actually go, you know what, God, I want to give you the next month and begin to pray for my neighbors by name or at least learn their name and then pray for them by name every day between now and Easter. What, 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 if, what if you were to, to actually redo your schedule and your budget to actually create a little bit of margin so that God could potentially use you to use your home as an outpost? What if you were to actually think about doing that? What if you were to create a Christ room or just have a neighborhood taco Tuesday night? I mean, just like the bar, this is what I love about this. We make it so hard on ourselves. We think we have to have a, like a, a doctorate in apologetics. We don't want to, to be exposed to someone who doesn't know the answer, so we just don't talk. And what if this is because hospitality is simply you enjoying Jesus in front of people who don't know him yet? That's what evangelism is. But if you, could, you pair that with hospitality, that is a beautiful pairing. It's a beautiful pairing. And it reminds me of, of a, a, an art. It's a Japanese art. It's called Kintsugi art. And this was starting in the 15th century. And there was a, a shogun who had a, a teapot. And this teapot got broke. And he shipped it off to China. It got brought back and it was fixed with staples. And he hated what he saw. And so he took the staples out and had... Um, a, a craftsman around him put gold in the cracks. And I've got a, a picture of it. it and, and it extenuated the cracks, but it made the bowl priceless. When I say enjoying Jesus in front of people who don't know him yet, I'm simply saying allow for the people that you invite into your home to discover your cracks that have been filled with the gold of Christ's forgiveness. And here's the fact, all of us are still being put together. For some of us, we've, we've been put into the hands of someone else and their hands slipped and dropped us and we shattered. For some of us, we shattered ourselves, And the story of of our journey in following Jesus is Jesus has taken the gold of his forgiveness, the gold of his resurrection, the gold of his peace, and has placed it into our life. And you know what? He's still putting us together. He's still at work. Do you know what, what this means to enjoy Jesus in front of people who don't know him yet? Is to simply hold out your life and allow for people to see the cracks of your reality, of your existence, and for people to see that the one who has put you together is Jesus. He's put your marriage together. He's keeping your kids together. Like this is the hope that we have. And I'll, I'll close with this. I've lived this out. At least I'm in the process. And my, my wife and I, we, we're 
we are convicted in becoming a family who is committed to this process. And so we're all doing this thing together, believe me. But um, over the last year, I've been able to do this with a neighbor named Bill. And Bill uh, went through a tragedy at the beginning of the pandemic. He lost his wife. And um, I just began to reach out to him, just knocking on his door. And we invited Bill over to our, our house. And we, my wife, she prayed, Lord, what do I serve this man? Like, what, I don't know what to, like, what do I serve? And she, she, she came up with, with Mississippi pot roast. And she made this guy, pot, he, he steps into her home, and the look of, he smelled pot roast. Pot roast is what his wife made him. Like, pot roast was his favorite. He sits down for three hours. We just are talking about life, about pain, I, it wasn't overtly religious. I just shared my story of why I'm a pastor, how, I, how, how I've come to this spot in my life, my weaknesses, my, my greatest places of failure, while at the same time what God has done in his faithfulness with our family. And I just, we were just, it was so natural. And this man, three hours later, he leaves. And within a week, I was driving and he flagged me down. He came out and he flagged me down. And he said, so I, I checked you out at that Grace Church. <laughs> and this is what he said. He said, I listened to every sermon you've ever preached there. And the, you know that message that you did on manhood? I've never heard anything like that. Now, this is a gentleman who is in his 60s from Pittsburgh. We have nothing in common. I mean, he would laugh at me with these pants. I mean, he would laugh. He, he is a... He is a very successful, very driven, self-made man with a lot of pain, with a lot of hope, with a lot of future. And this man looked at me and said, I, would, I really want to talk to you about this manhood thing that you talked about. Where did that come from? It was a hospitable environment, a place of welcome where this man could find his identity that created a new human, a new human. And church, this is... This is the hope that we have in front of us. I'll close with this quote. This is Rosaria Butterfield. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take their own sins seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. They see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Church, what if Washington, D.C. were to be a, a place, a, a a place of rarefied air in our homes where, where the outsider becomes the insider through you just simply taking your apartment, taking your home, if you live at, underneath your mom's basement, like wherever you are, even if you're a student, seeing your, your, your dormitory, seeing your moments at lunch, if you're in sixth grade, 
considering, God, allow for this moment of the table to be a space where heaven and earth meet. And those who are on the outside become insiders as I simply enjoy Jesus. Holding out my cracks to those who don't know him yet. Church, we are designed, invited, and called to simply let down the bucket of God's grace through the context of our home. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the gift of your story of Jesus and how you have been so hospitable to us. You have extended yourself to us. You have poured out yourself to us who are enemies of you. You brought us near. And you've designed us and invited us to follow you into this grace of hospitality.